All right, we are at the end of a three-week series on uh, generosity. And so uh, Michael Gregory, our church planner at Bridges, he covered time. How are we generous with our time? Look through generosity through that lens. Uh, last week I went, I talked about our treasure, our money. Everyone's glad that's over. And this week um, we have Richard Liu, who's also a church planter in Alhambra, for some of you who don't know it, in, with Bridges as well. And he's going to look at generosity through the lens of our talents, our gifts and abilities that God has given us that we also give to others. Some of you uh, might know this, I don't know if you do, but Richard and his wife, Danette, uh, came to the very first worship service that we had when we launched as uh, a church plant when we were worshiping in San Marino. And, um, and I don't know if they, they certainly didn't, try to time it, did you? It, it just happened, right? You just heard about us. And in, in, in talking to Richard um, subsequently, um, he, he had been ministering in a church in Monterey Park. And uh, I, I had voiced to Richard that something that Melissa and I wanted and what we wanted for our kids is we said, um, we want to be a part of a church that is a, at least attempting to look like the end of days when all the tribes and nations are worshiping together, and only, only a white dude can say this. I said, we just want so much more diversity for our kids, you know, and it was, it was really interesting because uh, Richard answered that, and he said, you know, Danette and I have been thinking and praying, and he said, did you know that that is also with our heart? is we have been a part of a homogenous church, and we also want to be a part of an expression of a diverse church that reflects all of Jesus' kingdom. And so what Michael and Richard are doing in Alhambra, Monterey Park, surrounding communities, is they are reconciling the nations by being two lead pastors, different races, yes, different cultures, yes, but binding themselves under Jesus. Um, Richard, I've known you to be a very gentle guy. Richard is a gentle guy, and it takes a lot of strength to be gentle at all times, um, and it takes being around our gentle Savior. Richard, we know that's true. We're really glad you're here. Come on up. All right, thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I don't know what to, I won't say anything about that because I can't talk about myself with that, so thanks, thanks, Tim. Um, uh, yeah, it's really great to be back here at the Ways, worshiping together. I wish uh, Danette and Dylan could be here. They wish they could as well. They got stuff, so uh, you have me instead. Sorry. <laughs> to mention, we're part three of a generosity series. It's, uh, we're on talent, and um, you know, there's a passage that uh, I was considering, uh, just looking through it. It's a passage that I always found kind of astounding, um, but let me just read it for us, and then um, we'll... Uh, we'll get into it. It's from Exodus, and it's kind of uh, really towards the end of Exodus, and um, uh, it's, shall we say, not the more exciting part of Exodus, so, uh, but I find it confounding and astounding at the same time, so I hope you kind of get this. But here we are, Exodus chapter 36, I'll read verses 1 to 7, but it really is part of a larger section. I'll try to kind of provide some context as we talk about it. But uh, Exodus 36, Bezazel and Aholiab. And every craftsman 
in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task in the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is the word of our Lord. Um, Let me pray for us as we kind of dive into this. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come to you, we, uh, we come with maybe many different things upon our hearts, our minds, um, but Lord, I pray of all things right now that you, you give us a glimpse of, of your beauty, because we need that um, in this particular time. So Lord, I pray then that the words of my mouth and you know, the meditations of all of hearts, let this be pleasing to you. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> it's part three of a sermon uh, series. Um, and for me, it's a little bit of a topical sermon. It's a little bit uh, not quite used to this, but we're in Exodus. Um, it's about the tabernacle. And if you know, the tabernacle is this tent um, and it's a place of meeting for God's people. But uh, I think we have an outline. Is that right? Um, I kind of like, okay. So uh, here's the question here. Is there an outline or no? Did I send this? No? Okay. Maybe not. Let me just uh, say this. I just was thinking about this tent in the wilderness, and uh, the question that I had as I was going through Exodus again is the, this tent is a very ornate tent, and uh, my question, and just want to kick it out for us, is why does God want his people to build an ornate tent in the wilderness? This is the book of Exodus. So uh, just to refresh your memory, if you haven't read Exodus recently um, or haven't watched any movies about Exodus, um, just uh, God's people begins, uh, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and Egypt's a prosperous, kind of a powerful nation at the time. They're slaves of the Pharaoh, and they're freed uh, from slavery uh, through God's mediator, Moses, this prophet, the great prophet, and it's all these miraculous interventions by God, 10 plagues, all this sort of great CGI stuff. If you've ever watched a movie about, you know, whatever, 10 commandments. Um, and then, actually 10 commandments is not CGI. Anyways, so, and so from there, they're led out of Egypt and they're into the wilderness. And then God continues to provide miraculously food, water, all these things that they need. And then in the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai. And God meets the prophets. Mount Sinai, he gives him the Ten Commandments, and then right after he gets, uh, gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he is also given instructions to build a tabernacle, that is a tent of meeting, and that's in chapters 25 to 31, kind of the second half of Exodus here. And you know, up to this point in the book of Exodus, 
It's like this incredible narrative. This is exciting. It's full of the mighty works of God and all these sort of harrowing things happen. It's just just thrilling. And uh, people make movies out of it, but people don't make movies out of the second half of the book of Exodus. Everything comes to a screeching halt because you get to this part where it's kind of like, well, it's a little boring, for lack of a better word. And I'm, I, I can't say part of Scripture is boring, but you know what I mean. It's kind of like, it's a little like flyover country in the book of Exodus. No movie ever covers this. Prince of Egypt never mentions this. Like, it's just not there. This whole six chapters are about the construction and the instruction about how to build this tent. And let me just read you a few verses if you never looked at it before, just to give you a taste of this. Um, Exodus chapter 26 begins, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them, and the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, about 19 inches, and then the breadth of each curtain, four cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. And five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and you shall make the loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make, you know, I I can go on and on. This is six chapters about this tent. And like, this is confounding to me. God spends one chapter to talk about the creation of the whole universe, Genesis chapter (laughs) 1, to Exodus chapter 6. Six chapters about this tent. What? You can understand why anyone who's going to make a movie out of Exodus, you just stop, you know, Sinai or somewhere. Like, you stop before this because why? Why? And come back to this. Why build an ornate tent in the wilderness? And I'm not a camper but I know that when you go camping, like the last thing you want to do is bring a lot of stuff, right? And the last thing you want is a intricately woven tent with all sorts of gold and silver and heavy bronze furnishings. That is the last thing you want to do and to lug around in the wilderness. And again, why? Why does God spend six chapters to tell his people after all these amazing things happen in Exodus, now do this. Well, just to kick it out there, um, the tabernacle is a place of meeting, and it's a place of meeting between God and humanity, and just want to say here that there's beauty in what this is all about. Uh, When God is talking about this place of meeting, he wants his people to understand that the beauty, the ornateness of this earthly tabernacle, it actually reflects heavenly realities. The New Testament will kind of bring this out a little bit more when you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Well, you know, this section of Hebrews will talk about this copy and the shadow of these heavenly things, and then it'll say in Hebrews 8, talk about these priests. He'll say, they serve a copy. They serve a, a shadow of heavenly realities that's on earth. They are reflecting something way beyond. And for when Moses was about to erect the tent, and I talk about the tabernacle in particular, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's Hebrews chapter eight. Now the mountain that he, the writer of Hebrews is talking about is Mount Sinai where Moses encountered God himself. And if you remember that part of Exodus, Moses goes up this mountain by himself and he meets God and everyone looks at this mountain that's surrounded by smoke. 
It's fire, there's lightning, it's frightening and terrifying, and Moses is there meeting God. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, the presence of God, it's holy, it is unapproachable, it's a burning bush, it's absolute power, these 10 plagues that rain down fury upon Egypt, it humbles Egypt, it is the parting of the Red Sea where all the armies are swept away. Uh, It is the smoking fire mountain. This is like the book of Exodus. And now, God says, build this tent and I will meet you there. Like, whoa. Um, What is this all about now? And when God has a place to meet his people, what does it look like? It's a place of beauty. There are portable Mount Sinai, no longer the smoking fire mountain, although it is a place where there is smoke and there's fire, but it's also a place of beauty. And there's a lot, a lot to say about this as you dive into those six chapters, uh, talk about the description of the tabernacle. Um, it's, uh, as you get closer and closer to the center, it becomes more and more ornate. The materials used are more and more precious, and it tells us many things about the presence of God and holiness and all these things. But I don't have time to dive into those now. You can geek out about that later. When you dive into that flyover country, um, please do that. It is actually worthwhile, believe it or not. Um, but I just want to get into uh, this one part that strikes me. Why build an ornate tent? It's like God actually cares about beauty and craftsmanship because where God is, is beauty. Because he is beauty. Beauty is one of the attributes of God. He is goodness, he's perfection, and then he is beauty. We see this all throughout the Bible. One one of the most famous places perhaps is in the Psalm, Psalm 27. Let me just read for you. David now, just thinking about God's beauty, says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house, house of the Lord, a tent, a temple, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in a shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the tent, under the cover of his tent, a tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. God values beauty even in the wilderness, even when it seems so impractical. Even the struggle to survive in the wilderness, there is, there's a need and a expression of beauty. And you might sort of wonder, if you're kind of like a more practical person like me, like, I still don't want to carry this tent around. <laughs> I, still don't want to, I still don't want to invest time and energy to make something so, you know, like, Why? And this is what confounds me. It confounds me. Is there beauty? Is there a value to beauty in the wilderness? The wilderness, it's, uh, it's a place of suffering, right? People are just looking for food, for water. Uh, the, the wilderness is a place of stress, like are we going to make it? The wilderness is a place of monotony, like endless day after day. Getting, getting the same things. And I would suggest that especially in the wilderness, we need beauty. Because beauty is restful, and beauty is refreshing, and if you don't believe me, even in our sort of urban wilderness, if you ever feel stressed out or anything like that, what, why do we slap on a head, set of headphones, right? 
and listen to something because it's transporting, right? It, it takes us somewhere else. It reminds us that, oh, my day-to-day -day stuff is not all there is. There is something else. Um, there, is, there is actually beauty, right? And, uh, you know, I was just talking to Peter earlier. Danette and I's 20th anniversary, we took a trip to Hawaii, Big Island. You know, in our sort of urban wilderness, we don't get to see beauty all the time, but we kind of have to go out into the wilderness to see kind of creative beauty. I was telling Peter that uh, we had a chance to go to the volcano in Kilauea, which I don't know if you know, it was not erupting, and then about an hour before we got there, started erupting. I'd never seen an erupting volcano before. Um, crazy. Um, and people were just gathered out there and staring. And I was staring too, slack-jawed, like, what is this? And we were all standing out there, it was just getting colder and colder, believe it or not, it gets cold in Hawaii when you're up, way up, like 10,000 feet. And uh, we're staring. I stood there for like, I don't know, like I think an hour and a half, and my seven-year-old was staring too, just slack-jawed. Uh, volcano. And I was just listening, to, and people around me, not believers at all, right? They're whispering. Wow. Look at that. Like in, in reverence, an awe of beauty, maybe potential danger. That's me. Like, like what is this? Um, and then uh, just the whispers around me, just talking to other people. This is otherworldly. Like, I've never seen anything like this. Um, this is, it's beautiful. And that word otherworldly, it really stuck in my mind because why do we need beauty in the wilderness, in monotony, in struggle for survival, in times of stress and everything like that? We need these reminders that there is something else. There's something else far beyond us. And for me, I was just staring at this volcano, which as a believer, I'm thinking, oh, God the creator makes this, and how much greater and how much more otherworldly can it be? But in such a very small and tangible way, this immense and bubbling and frightening volcano just reminded me like, oh, I see something. There is something else. This shadow points to a greater reality. And the tabernacle, I think, why build this ornate thing, lug it around? It's because we all, in some wilderness, we all need a reminder of beauty, that there is something else, far greater. All these things around us, even the most beautiful thing is still just a shadow reminding us that there's glory, there's beauty that the world will never touch I will not darken. And uh, I don't know about you all, but this morning I got a flood of text messages from everybody just about stuff going on. My community, like, I grew up in that area. Um, and as I thought about all those things, and just all wave emotions. And a little bit later, I thought, oh, I'm supposed to preach. What am I supposed to say? I'm talking about beauty of all things and like this. And, like, and then I realized this is exactly what we need to hear, that in the middle of the wilderness, uh, Stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. People die in the wilderness. Um, but that's exactly why the people of Israel needed this tabernacle. And that's exactly why we still, God's people, we need to gather. We need to hear. We need a glimpse of God's beauty, reminding ourselves that there's something other, incredibly other. And it's not just something that I have to lug around. It is 
It is an honor. It is mind-expanding. It is life-giving to glimpse that beauty. But still, I have to stop and think. They're in the wilderness. God gives them six chapters of stuff to do. Is it too demanding of God to make some ornate tent in the wilderness? Second point here is that, you know, when God asks them to do these things, he provides an overabundance of skills and talents and resources. You know, again, the start of the construction of the tabernacle, Exodus 35, you know, Moses, he calls people together, tells them, bring precious materials, gold, silver, bronze, gems, fine cloths, acacia wood, all sorts of stuff like that. And you have to stop, well, where did all that stuff come from? They're in the wilderness. They're not like mining gold somewhere. Like, where did all this stuff come from? If you have to read earlier in Exodus, it came from Egypt. And the last of the great plagues upon Egypt, the Egyptian masters were so eager for the Israelites to leave that they just gave them stuff, gave them precious stuff. Just take and leave. Did these Israelites make these things? Did they get these things? No, it was provided miraculously by God. God provides. And then you get to Exodus 36, and you see the craftsmen telling Moses, hey, the people bring much more than enough, and I, this cracks me up, right? They bring too much. We've got to tell them to stop, right? <laughs> what is going on here? And then Moses you know, has to tell people, hey, stop bringing stuff. And I always think, man, Moses, what a bad fundraiser you are. Like, can you imagine having to go up to people, hey, uh, yeah, please, you know, all that stuff, all that gold, can you just take it back? I mean, just too much, like, just stop bringing stuff, okay? Like, God provides all that his people need to do his will. And not only does God provide the, the resources, the, the material, he provides the skills. Verse 2 here, every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. And not only does he put the skill in people's minds, but also God's, and I would say God's beauty moves and motivates his people to do the work. Verse 2 continues, says that their hearts were stirred up to come and do the work. It's like, wow, what does it feel like to have my heart stirred up to do these things? And I just said it here, I think what this means, why do you have this ornate tent, is that God's beauty, it motivates, it moves. Uh, in other words, Beauty is not decor. That's the third point up here. Beauty is not decor. It's not how well we've placed all these things in the tent or whatever it is. But God's beauty is, it's irresistible. And it's empowering. Uh, it just, it reminds me of, you know, just lots of things. But there's this uh, writer, Edgar Allan Poe, famous, right? He wrote an essay, Poetic Principles. And he's talking about um, you know, again, just poetry and beauty and stuff like that. And then he says, it is the desire of the moth for the star. You know, moths drawn to light, but star up in the sky, moth just drawn by its beauty, this something that is irresistible to the moth. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. And this is what God's beauty is like. It, it is irresistible, like a light to a moth, and it draws us, it just empowers God's people. You know, I think about uh, 
Um, a couple of friends I had in college, um, and uh, they're both uh, illustrators great, and graphic designer majors and stuff like that. I was like the other non-cool person, but uh, we're doing stuff one day, and they're working on their project. And um, one of my friends, uh, I'd say they're not here, clearly more talented than the other guy. And they're both doing their stuff. And they're working, 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 I'm watching, I'm doing some other stuff. Come midnight, I'm like, all right guys, let's go. Like, it's way too late. Let's get something to eat, let's go like, do stuff. And uh, my friend who is probably the more talented one, said, no, nah, I'm gonna stay. I'm like, oh, come on, dude, let's, let's just go. Let's, we just gotta go. And he said, no, I'm gonna do this. And then I said, like, why? And then he said, He's joking, well, it'll be glorious, right? Like, come on, dude, you're just like doing your... And then I said, really, really, why, why don't you want to go? I said, and then he said, and I remember this, he said, for, for beauty. It's like, oh. He, as an artist, just was yearning for, right? Like a, like a moth, you know, reaching for that star, right? Or, or maybe how an earthly tent is just this copy, a shadow of these heavenly realities, like that's what God's beauty does, it, it draws, it, it moves. Question is, what's, what's this inspiring beauty that God's people experienced in the wilderness, right? It's, it seems a little abstract, right? Now, let me, just, let me just point out the structure here back to Exodus. Um, I was not entirely truthful. Six chapters about the tabernacle, how are you supposed to do it? There's actually another four chapters about the building of it, okay? <laughs> 10 chapters about the tabernacle. Six are the instructions, that's uh, chapters 25 to 31, and 35 to 39 are about the actual construction of it. And I think this is important, because there's a gap. 25 to 31, the actual construction starts in 35 to 39, from 32 to 34. There's the gap, and I think that's really significant, because why? They got all these instructions, they told God, we will do everything you say, and of course we know that, how that turns out, and then a gap, and then they get to work. Something happens, and if you know the book of Exodus, chapter 32, they're in the wilderness, and they make the golden calf. They fall into idolatry, horrible sin, God is, angry. He is going to wipe them off the face of the earth. He's, and Moses, the mediator, he prays to God. He says, you know, don't, don't do all these things. He's, he's interceding for his people. And then God relents and renews the covenant in chapter 34. And then this passage shows up in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, this, this is what God says to people who are not just in the doghouse, they are deserving of being ground into the dust. And God shows up abounding in love and mercy. Flip the page, the people energetically bring and do 
exactly what the Lord commanded. What was the beauty of God that they witnessed? It is this grace. This is the God who is merciful to his wayward and stubborn people. I don't know about you, but you know, are your hearts ever stirred up to do the work to glorify God? Oh, man. I like to say yes, but pastor confession, certainly not all the time. <laughs> and in those times when my heart is not stirred up and I'm like, oh, I got to do it, it's my job, like, I, it happens, I do that. I don't know about you all, but when I stop and think about something like Exodus 34, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and steadfast love and just how much, <laughs> how much I need that, like how much that is, the beauty that I've been striving for and just yearning for, like a moth to, when I stop and think about it that way, and, th- and think about maybe my heart stirred up, like I think about all the things I'd rather do than do stuff to glorify God. And then I stop and have to think and press. And then the question always pops up. <clears throat> With that type of God, what else would I rather be doing? And if I stop and meditate upon that, <clears throat> it, it, it changes for me. So this part of Exodus, I, I just summarize a little bit, is that God provides the resources skills and the talent, and more than that, and probably more importantly, he stirs up our hearts to use those skills because of his beautiful mercy. And just to kind of speed up here a little bit, because we can see some of the contrasts pretty easily when our skills and talents, you know, they're serving the right beauty, and then when they serve the wrong beauty, Um, because we see what God's people were doing in the first half of the book of Exodus. You know, they're in in Egypt. They're under Pharaoh. This is the first point there. And then what are they doing with their hands? They are making bricks of straw and mud. You know, they're employing all their efforts to toil in the mud and straw, making bricks for Pharaoh's glory, his agenda, his purposes, and it's slavery. Literally, it's slavery. It is drudgery. Mud and straw and bricks every day, all the time. Waste of talents, perhaps, waste of skills. It's no surprise, I think, to any of us that when we're stuck and feeling enslaved that work and toil and our talents feel like they're being wasted and it feels like a drudgery, that's Egypt. But you know, the the solution of the world is something like, hey, get out of that, right? Uh, The solution of the world is something, find freedom or something like, especially these days, be your own boss, or do what you love, which is what's preached to all of our young people these days, and if you're an old fogey, I'm like, I listen to that, I'm like, oh, you know, there's a reason why they call it work, but, I mean, that's just me being ornery, but the solution's not either, that's what I'm getting at, uh, because once you get freedom, what happens when they're in the wilderness, and they're completely free, what do they do with their hands? They make a golden calf. It might seem fulfilling for that moment, but it's chaos in the wilderness, it's idolatry, it's sin, it brings ultimate destruction upon themselves. Uh, this message about do what you love, it's, that's exactly what they did in the wilderness when they made the golden calf. Do what you love, but the Bible is trying to say with your talents and skills and your hands and everything, 
It's not do what you love, although that, that captures maybe a sliver of it. It's do for the one who truly loves, or do for the one abounding in love and rich in mercy. That is really the only and the only true freedom for God's people to do something that is not making mud and bricks or bricks out of mud or not making a golden calf. It is knowing who truly loves and has set them free. And we work not for my own love, but for the one who loves in that way. Hence what Paul will say later in the New Testament, and I think it's up there in the call the worshiper, something is like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's where our true joy comes in using the skills and the gifts that God has given to us. And this is what God has called us to. This is the ends of what we're called to put our skills and talents to. It's, it's, for, it's for God's glory. And my question maybe right now is, what are you using maybe all your skills, all your talents, for your resources? It is, is it for the true and right beauty? Is it, for, is it for something that's lasting even? The lasting beauty that I think we all want. If you're a craftsman, you want to see your stuff valued, right? You want to see it survive. Really, the question is, what is true and lasting beauty? And really, when you stop and think about it, maybe just, uh, are there anything our earthly skills make that can be truly lasting? Everything fades, everything crumbles, even the most beautiful thing fades away. This kind of gets to the last thing here. What is the truly beautiful tent? And I would suggest it's not that tabernacle that they made, it's lost to the sands of time. The Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle, again, famously lost to the sands of time, unless you're Indiana Jones. But, um, but this is this. What is the truly beautiful tent that God is calling his people to do? And um, it's actually not anything he's calling his people to do. When you get to the New Testament, we read that John chapter 1, verse 14, famously, um, John begins that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. We see that the Word is God. And then 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, if you don't know in the Greek, it's actually this word for tented or tabernacled. In other words, what the New Testament starts to tell us is that the true beautiful tent is Jesus, who is God's beautiful presence among his people. His people don't have to do scramble to make something beautiful. God is the one who dwells among his people beautifully. And when Jesus does that, it brings us a new vision, I think, of what beauty really is. And it's not necessarily the way the world sees it or the way that the world will want to define it. And Isaiah 53 will famously say, I think about Jesus, that he, he, the very presence of God, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And yet, this is the presence of God. In the Old Testament, it was power and majesty, beauty. When Jesus comes, it's, who is this guy? If you took a picture of Jesus, you know, pulled out your phone, took a picture of Jesus with his 12 disciples, you wouldn't be able to pick him out, right? One Middle Eastern Jewish-like looking dude amongst 12 others, right? But, 
if you took your phone, flipped off photo, put it on video, and uh, you know, even if you took off the volume, you started videoing his, these guys, Jesus and his 12 disciples, I would bet you would figure out who Jesus is pretty quickly. A couple minutes. Because Jesus is the guy who is sitting with you know, the outsider. right? He's the one who comes alongside the brokenhearted. He's the one who's serving humbly. He's the one who stands up when no one else wants to stand up against oppression. He heals the brokenhearted. You would know. Flip that phone on the video, you would know who Jesus is. And the Bible, I think, wants to tell us that that is beautiful. He doesn't look like anything, but he is everything. And how Jesus treated people is absolutely beautiful. Kind of reminds me of this is what true and lasting beauty really is, because Jesus, you know, I guess, you know, we had a great C.S. Lewis quote last week, so here's another one, one of my famous things, uh, one of my favorite things that C.S. Lewis wrote, Weight of Glory. He's talking about what is actually true and lasting beauty. There's that. And then he says something like, there are no ordinary people. He says, you've never talked to a mere mortal. And he's sitting here next to the person here, all these people here. You're not sitting next to a mere mortal. And he says, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, all those things are mortal. And their life to ours is the life of a gnat. We are immortal souls, in other words. And he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the, the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if ever, only in a nightmare. I mean, Jesus knows what is truly, eternally lasting and beautiful, and he treats people who are immortal souls beautifully. And he, ultimately, he makes all things beautiful. That's an echo of Ecclesiastes chapter three, but what Jesus does is he sees all these people around him, these people who want to be beautiful, want to be valued, um, attractive, to be something in the world that everyone would be woo. But Jesus, not physically attractive, and even more so, he will intentionally give himself over to abuse and torture, let himself be made ugly, literally disfigured for our sake. The beautiful God becomes unlovely so that we, people who are unlovely, who are far more disfigured than we want to admit, become lovely for him. He makes all things beautiful so that we, his people, might make beauty to glorify him. This is just the pattern of what God does and we get to be just a mere shadow of those things. So my encouragement for all of us maybe is uh, to do beautiful things to glorify God. And we, when we do them in a lasting way, it is to bless others. 
people around us. And when I say beauty, I know if we think about things like the creative arts, perhaps, maybe things like making music, and it was fantastic, the music up here, thanks Will and the rest of the team. Um, that is great, I love that, but that is just a small glimpse of using our talents and skills to glorify God. I mean, for those artists in here, and I know there are, great, make beautiful things, but also know that the most beautiful thing you ever make is just a thin shadow that points to the true beauty. And when we enjoy that, make signs that point to that heavenly reality, that, that, is, that is true and lasting beauty. But it's not just the creative arts for beauty. You know, God is a creator. He, he puts things in good order. And I always struggle with this because I'm not this type of person, but God likes to put things in order. <laughs> he's like an organizer. Uh, he's a manager. He works with people. There are beautiful things about that as well. I mean, is there anything more beautiful than a team that is clicking together, where people are working and knowing what they're up to, helping each other, that's beautiful, because that's what God does. You know, I, uh, you, know, you know my wife, Danette, I don't know if you know her, but she's a great singer, and I love that. She uses her talents to glorify God. Sunday, this morning even, beautiful. Danette at work on the weekdays. Uh, she oversees this uh, organization, this part of the organization, a bunch of people, 90 people, it's a huge headache. And I always struggle in the morning, like how am I supposed to pray for Danette? Like, oh, you know, don't get stressed out, like, be patient, whatever, like, all this stuff. But in the end, I started to realize, and this is the best prayer, is that I pray that when God, uh, when, when, God, <laughs> when Danette is at work and she is working with her team, that she exercises her authority in a godly way, in a way that glorifies God, because that's beautiful. And that when people are under that authority. They see, maybe small taste, certainly not perfect, but as they see a good, God-glorifying authority, that it strikes them as something just a little bit different, maybe just a little bit otherworldly, and that makes them yearn just a little bit more, I hope and pray, for God's kingdom. And this is true for all the stuff that we do. Whatever talents God has poured out upon you, you number crunchers and you work with spreadsheets, believe it or not, there is such thing as a beautiful spreadsheet. And if you are in spreadsheets and you do that stuff, you know, right? If you're coding stuff, there is such thing as beautiful code. And if you do that, you know do those things, because God has given you all the skills and gifts to do those things. We do those things for beauty that points to a greater heavenly reality. God is that God who creates and designs and builds things intricately and beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully. And when we strive to do those things for his glory, believe it or not, it actually blesses the people around us. A clean and good spreadsheet blesses others, believe it or not. A team that works together and gets it that's a beautiful thing, and it blesses others. And we can go on and on. This is just that. Stir up your hearts, not because of anything we can do, but just reflecting upon who our God is in his mercy, rich and beautiful for us. Know that he makes all of us 
unlovely ones beautiful so that we might glorify him and bless others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are that type of God who is the creator of everything. And when we have the eyes to see, the eyes that you give us, we get to see beauty that the world does not fully understand, but they yearn to understand, and we still yearn to understand heavenly realities that we just get glimpses of pale shadows here on this earth, but we value that. And I pray that you show us more and more of yourself, rich in mercy and love, that we value your beauty that much more, that we're transformed by your beauty that much more, that we are stirred up by your beauty that much more, that we might do beautiful things for your glory. We pray in the name of Son Jesus. Amen.